Tua. Fires, touchdown Miami. Waddle snuck into the end zone of Miami. Boy, tight throw, tight window. They had to get that touchdown on that play. They get it. What is up, Dolphins? And welcome to the Drive Time Podcast, part of the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network, covering your team, your Miami Dolphins. How's it going, everybody? I am your host, Travis Wingfield. And on today's show, we are putting a bow on the combine and some draft notes until... After free agency calms down from the first week or two of activity, we're going to welcome in our annual guest and Kent Platt of the Relative Athletic Scorecard to help us break down the on-field workouts. Plus, we have to talk about the crazy week that has been in the National Football League franchise tag deadline, major quarterback news, and the impact on the new league year coming your way next week with wall-to-wall coverage here on the Drive Time Podcast and all of our Miami Dolphins content avenues from somewhere in South Florida. This is the Drive Time Podcast. Another Miami Dolphins. We start here with some Dolphins news and we'll get to the league news here in just one second. But we start with some tendered exclusive rights free agents. Defensive back Elijah Campbell, who joined the club midseason last year and really became one of the core special teamers and was an absolute maven in that role for that matter. Watching him on tape, he was consistently getting down on tackles and getting off blocks and just doing the work, the dirty work that kind of goes unnoticed on the third phase so often. And you can never have enough defensive backs, especially when they function that highly on special teams. And then also running back Savon Ahmed, who you might recall began his career with the 49ers as a UDFA out of UW and Mike McDaniel there with the Niners. He'll get a chance to show this staff what he can do. And what I've always thought that Savon could do is hit home runs. He has electric speed and acceleration to the perimeter and otherwise. What game was that last year? I think it was the the Panthers where I thought he was a shoestring tackle away. Two separate occasions from hitting the big run. You bring that single high safety down, you get it blocked up well, you make one guy miss at the second level, and you can hit some home runs in the running game, and we know how much I love big plays in the running game. And then also, his factoring into the passing game. Remember that wheel route he caught against the Bears from Jacoby Brissett last preseason for a touchdown? That happened almost daily in camp, and I always wanted to see him get more of those looks and get another opportunity to see just more of what he can do And we'll get that opportunity here this offseason to watch him in the offseason camps and up to training camp. Then, of course, nothing can become official. Sands players who were outright released agreeing to terms with new clubs, but nothing else can become official until the new league year. You might recall Alex Smith's trade back in, is that 2018? Or the Matt Stafford trade last winter. Both of those went down within a week of the Super Bowl, per reports, right? Couldn't make it official until the new league year. Then we saw them officially executed on, you know, in mid-March. And it's not like that's some new thing. I mean, I remember the Sam Bradford trade to, was it Minnesota? No, it was the one before that. It was the Eagles trade. But that was 2015, which leads me into the first point I have about all the news that went down on Tuesday. Actually, first, in case this is the only football content you consume... And if it is, we thank you. But here's the news that happened. So Aaron Rodgers will reportedly sign a new contract to stay with the Packers. 
probably until he retires, right? The contract is said to be four years, which will take him well into his 40s. And how cool was the reaction to that news and kind of a peek behind the curtain in terms of how these NFL front offices and executives are just always working, trying to find the best way possible to improve their football teams. I mean, the Rodgers links to Denver, especially with Nathaniel Hackett there, they were quite strong. And then that began in earnest long before that last year on draft night, when those reports first surfaced that Rodgers might be interested in a trade out of Green Bay. I'll never forget being at the stadium for draft night and the draft party. It was all we could talk about, whether I was talking to alumni, fellow media members, people, fans at the stadium. Everyone was buzzing about the potential Aaron Rodgers trade that was supposed to go down that night on draft night. It never did. It never materialized. And here he is now back with the Packers. But that was all we could talk about. It it took up the headlines. It sure as hell takes up the A blocks of so many syndicated radio shows I'm a fan of. And it, it grew a little bit tiring, but that shoe dropped. Then the bigger shoe dropped in the Russell Wilson trade, which again, this gives you the idea, you know, the, the Broncos so heavily linked to Aaron Rodgers that gets announced. And just a couple hours later, the Russell Wilson trade has been announced. And, you know, much to the dismay of my friends back home in the Emerald city and the breathtaking Pacific Northwest, he is a Seahawk no more. Seattle and Denver strike a trade that sends the future Hall of Fame quarterback, I feel pretty comfortable saying that, to the Rocky Mountains in exchange for, and it's a lot. There was a fourth, fifth round pick swap. Let's get that out of the way. But Seattle gets Denver's first rounders in 2022 and 2023. That's the ninth pick this year. And that to me is where the real value there comes because you know, even if the Broncos don't play to, I think, what their expectation would be, even even in that instance, you have to assume like seven, eight wins minimum, which puts you in the teens of the following draft. So the ninth pick is probably, not guaranteed, but probably the highest pick the Seahawks will get from that haul. Now, when we got the picks from Houston for the Laramie Tunzel-Kenny Stills trade, I think there was always the potential for those Texans teams to have what amounted to, you know, a Murphy's Law type of season, right? Where everything goes wrong because they had injuries to DeAndre Hopkins, to J.J. Watt, to so many uh, crucial players on that roster. And that was without an injury to the starting quarterback who played all 16 games that year. And that's, I mean, that's why it's somewhat insane that when Dolphins wound up with a third pick, and ultimately Jalen Waddell and Javon Holland and another first round pick in 2023. More on us here in just a minute. So can the Seahawks use that ninth pick to acquire more draft capital this year? Maybe, maybe. My buddy Mitch from back home might lose his mind if that happens. In fact, I told him I might mention him on the podcast and the idea of them moving back. And if you know the Seahawks, they move back in the draft all the time. And he says if they find a way to trade all the way out of the first round altogether, that he's looking, or that I'm looking rather, at the newest Miami Dolphins fan. So, Mitch, come join us, my friend. But the Seahawks get the two first rounders. They get two second rounders. They get Shelby Harris, a damn fine player. They get Noah Fant, who I think has all kinds of ability that has not yet shown itself in the National Football League in terms of his upside and production. And they also get Drew Locke, the former second round pick there of the Denver Broncos. And with that, Jimmy Johnson trade value chart that we consult so often on this podcast, on Twitter, and and really across the football landscape. 
that's a suggestion these days, right? The value that we have to evaluate off of is really just the recent trade. So that brings me back to this point, a trade the Dolphins made back in 2019 that the Sun has still not set on in the Laramie Tunzel-Kenny Stills trade. Two first-round picks and a second-round pick, which again, Waddle and Holland are part of that haul. Feel pretty good about that. Some mid-round swaps and some player swaps. You know, Johnson Batamosi was part of that trade, a special teams player and defensive back for that 2019 Dolphins team. And again, you should also mention Kenny Stills because he was a heck of a player and he his name often gets buried in revisiting that trade, but he was a big piece for that Texans offense as well. But I mean, we're talking about quarterback value for a non-quarterback and maximizing the opportunities you have to get well above market value when the opportunity presents itself. And now, if you look at reports circulating out there, like Lance Zerline, for instance, from NFL.com, who does radio in Houston and is as plugged in in Houston as anybody across the National Football League, suggesting that Laramie Tunzel might be available for a trade this offseason. And he floated the idea of a potential late first-round pick to make that happen. Like, I mean, that's that's about the value you've seen from Orlando Brown. From a even a Frank Clark, a, a you know non quarterback, big time producer that was traded at you know before a contract came up, and what do you see who with the quarterbacks who get dealt in these blockbuster trades? You think Matt Stafford's going anywhere from Los Angeles anytime soon? He'll be there forever probably. You think Russell Wilson's going to play anywhere but Denver for a while? I mean, he had to sign off on a no trade provision to let this deal happen. You have to think the Rams and Broncos respectively feel like they have their quarterbacks for the next seven, eight years minimum. Stafford was acquired for two first-round picks and a third, but another big part of that trade was offloading the Jared Goff contract. But from a picks perspective, it was literally less than what Miami got for Laramie Tunzel. And we talk about this roster on the podcast a lot, right? You know the names, Christian Wilkins, going back to 2019, Andrew Van Ginkle, Tua, Big Rob, Raekwon Davis, Brandon Jones, Jalen Waddle, Jalen Phillips, Javon Holland. In a lot of ways, that trade set the table for the Dolphins to have this run of draft success where they're picking up big-time contributors on rookie contracts and really having those guys be primary producers on this roster, the flexibility you gain from that and the fact that you're still profiting off that that trade and future draft picks, it creates a level of flexibility. It creates a level of, well, we can go after this position because we know we have more picks here. It's just, I mean, that's, that's the definition of flexibility, but it really set the table for Miami to get themselves into this position where they have the most cap space in the National Football League, the least amount of dead cap in the National Football League, a whole bunch of young players on rookie contracts who are big-time producers in the system. That's a big part of it. So that's the Dolphins' lens on that. And frankly, I'm excited to have another year of someone else's first-round pick. It always adds an element of excitement to that particular season. Now, Wilson to the AFC is... Well, I mean, this conference and the balance of quarterback play is, it's tough. That division, someone asked me this or asked this question on Twitter, I should say, is this the best quarterback division of all time? And I saw some references to the 90s AFC East with Marino, Kelly, Bledsoe, Esiason, and Harbaugh. That's pretty good. But I think I might lean towards this one right now. I mean, Mahomes, Wilson, Herbert Carr. Derek Carr would probably be minimum the second best quarterback in like a lot of divisions in the National Football League, the majority of divisions. And you can certainly make the argument that he would come in fourth in an AFC West quarterback power rankings. And this is a guy that I had firmly, very firmly among my top 10 quarterbacks a season ago. Just insane, the balance of power there. By the way, we play the AFC North this year, 
but we've seen 10 wins come up short of a playoff berth. We've seen nine wins come up short of a playoff berth. We've seen the first team have back-to-back winning seasons result in zero playoff berths. The first team to do that since, well, us in 2002-2003. And that speaks to the balance of power between the conferences the last two years and this AFC gauntlet. So no one said it was going to be easy. Lots of work to be done for every club, obviously, across the National Football League. But it did get a little bit harder with Mr. Unlimited coming to the AFC. All right, that wasn't the only news. We talked about Mike Gesicki's franchise tag on the last edition of the Drive Time Podcast. There was some more that went down. Mike Gesicki, Dalton Schultz, the Cowboys, David Njoku from the Cleveland Browns, the tight end market there to press a little bit. Devontae Adams, uh, Chris Godwin, Jesse Bates, Cam Robinson, and Orlando Brown. So the tight end market takes a bit of a hit, but that makes you feel better about Mike Gesicki coming back. Adams with Rodgers and that contract, both those guys will have on the on the tag and, and the extension that Rodgers reported to receive. That'll be fun to watch how the Packers piece that thing together. Two very, very expensive players and two, well, the best, probably the best quarterback and the best receiver in the National Football League. So with Adams and Godwin going off the market and Mike Williams signing an extension with the Chargers on a mega, mega deal, that depletes the receiver market a little bit, which we're going to do an updated version of some of those free agent primers we did, was it, a month ago, and give you a better vision of what it looks like now come the new league year. So those guys off the market, Calvin Ridley, obviously, was mentioned among reports as guys that might be available for trade. Strike that idea. That's four guys at the receiver position that were inside Pro Football Focus's top 20 available free agents and not a free agent, but a guy that was rumored to be potentially on the move. So four of those top guys out of the equation now. And just some late breaking news into the podcast. As I'm recording, Carson Wentz, it sounds like, will be going from Indianapolis back to the NFC East for the Washington Commanders. So some more quarterback movement here in the league. The dominoes continue to fall, so we'll have all of that stuff covered for you here on the Drive Time Podcast in the coming days and the coming weeks here as the new league year kicks off next week. And look, I want to make an apology here real quick to the Miami Heat and Heat fans everywhere because I was caught up in the hysteria of the NFL offseason, which is, in all honesty, the second best season of sports behind the NFL season. And so I tweeted that all other sports are just passing time between the NFL's tentpole events. But you guys know I'm all in on the Miami Heat. Let's go Heat, baby. And their run to the finals as there's a drive deep to left, that'll make it a 4-0 ball game. So like I said, we'll revisit this next week. I also want to hear from you. Put your questions in the Apple Podcast Reviews. I'll answer the five-star ratings on our Mailbag Podcast next week. Also, I'll put a tweet out for that and get some written questions on the MiamiDolphins.com webpage to get as many of your questions answered as we can. But coming up next, back to the Combine, my annual guest, Kent Platt, the creator of of the Relative Athletic Scorecard. That's coming your way next here on the Drive Time Podcast, brought to you by AutoNation. Back here on the Drive Time Podcast, brought to you by AutoNation, and I am thrilled to be joined, as I am annually, by... This is off my show notes, Kent, but the best mustache I've seen so far in the whole Zoom process. He is Kent Platt, the creator of one of my of my favorite draft resource that's out there in the Relative Athletic Scorecard. Kent, first welcome. Fantastic mustache. And to kick it off, rather than me explaining RAS, why don't you go ahead and give the audience here a quick rundown on what exactly RAS is? 
Yeah, great. I'm glad that you had me on. I always love coming back. Uh, Relative Athletic Score was created to be uh, a way to contextualize the metrics that we get at the combine and the pro days every year. It's very easy to use all those buzzwords like, oh, this guy's quick but not fast, or this guy's explosive. And and that type of stuff doesn't really mean anything. It's just words that they throw around. But then you see the times, the actual raw metrics, and those don't really mean anything to most fans either. If I, if I tell you that a wide receiver ran a 4.52, that doesn't really mean that much. But if I tell you a wide receiver ran a 4.52 and a defensive end ran a 4.52, well, that's the same time. That's 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 good for both, right? Well, it's, it's okay for a wide receiver, whereas for a defensive end, that's a fantastic time. And Raz does a great job of contextualizing that because your score at a receiver for 4.52 is going to be just about average, a little bit above average, but for a defensive end, that's going to be very, very high because for a defensive end, that's a much more impressive score. Everything's rated on a zero to 10 scale. Everybody can understand zero to 10. Zero is never good. 10 is always good when you're zero to 10. Um, and everything's color coded. You know, it's got the little stoplight color, color scheme, red, red, yellow, and green. And people can figure that stuff out on their own too. So the idea was to create something that was very fan-facing and very easy to understand, and I think it's done a pretty good job of that over the last couple of years. Oh, I think without question it has, especially the red, the red, green, yellow, man. Like every time I type in a player, like a, for instance, on draft night, if the Dolphins draft someone that I'm not intimately familiar with their game, I'll RAS that thing, find it out, and then when it's all green, it's like, all right, here we go. Now we're talking. Now we're cooking with gas. <laughs> and so that kind of brings me to a question I was curious about, Kenton. I don't know if there is an answer to this or not. I'm just kind of kind of going off script again on you. I apologize for that. But um, it fascinates me so much. I was just wondering, do you find uh, you know, certain certain indicators or is there a, a certain way to, to score or measure ultimately the success of draft picks or players that ties back to RAS because, you know, we've talked, we talked about this off air. You don't have to have elite testing numbers to be a great NFL player. Like Xavier Howard was a player who, who wasn't a high RAS score, one of the best cornerbacks in the national football league. But have you kind of over the years, cause this goes back to 1987. Have you kind of put together something in your mind about like, okay, I know that when a player does this, this, and this, it tends to equal that, or does that not exist in this project? It's hard because when you're trying to explain it, everybody wants it to be like, well, higher number means better. So if I get this, I should get this. And and it doesn't really correlate in that way. Everything's kind of threshold based and you can really see it. Um, I actually put it up on the site now on the main page at, at RAS.football. You can actually sort by pro bowlers or by thousand yard receivers or thousand yard rushers or, or pass rushers that have 10 sacks in a season and you'll see it immediately because a majority of those guys are going to be in the green. So it shows you that there's a correlation over time for guys that test really well. But that doesn't mean that a guy tests well and he's going to do well. It just generally means that if a guy does well, he probably tested well. So it kind of works the other way around. And once you get that kind of mindset, it really helps to project because you're never going to look just at testing numbers. You're always going to go back to the tape and see what else is there. Because whether a guy tests well or he tests poorly, if he's got good tape, that's a guy that you're going to be considering drafting for your football team. It's just weighing the risk based on, on um, tons of different factors, of which athletic testing is one. 
No, it, it makes perfect sense. And and for me, you know, knowing those kind of comparison cards, like I told you, I use this tool not just during draft season, but sometimes in season when I'm trying to think about particular matchups for, for the team. Like for instance, if they have a super athletic, long speed type of cor- uh, receiver, I might think about Byron Jones because of how athletic he is and how he might match up in that skill set. So it's fascinating stuff, Kent. We're just getting started here. And before we do get started, you know, I wanted to look at maybe some current Dolphins and where they checked in to kind of help develop that shared aesthetic for both you and I, but also for the audience. And again, where else would you start besides Byron Jones, who broke all kinds of combine records and even a world record on the broad jump? What about his RAS that really kind of, I guess, just walk us through Byron Jones and, and the RAS scorecard? Yeah, Byron Jones actually broke Raz. The original calculation <laughs> that I had for, for Raz was broken by Byron Jones because his his 12-foot three inch broad jump was so much higher than the next best guy that the old calculation that I used just, just wasn't sufficient anymore. (laughs) Uh, But Byron Jones came out uh, with a, with a straight 10 because I think he came out as a safety originally and then transferred to transition to quarterback cornerback. Um, But he's got a 9.99 and almost all of his stats are above nine. Anything above eight is considered elite tier that top 20%. And he's above nine on almost all of his metrics. And the ones that he's not above nine on, he's still above eight on. Every single metric is green. You know, this isn't a guy that came out messing around when it came to his combine testing. He, he wanted to blow everything out of the water, and then he did. He definitely did that. Another guy that we just saw get the franchise tag for the Miami Dolphins and Mike Gesicki, he had similar testing numbers, which surprised Nobody who knew about his basketball, his volleyball, his college tape background. But what about Mike Gesicki? Where did he check in among tight ends all time? Or I guess since 87. Yeah, he came in at, at 9.97, which was the second highest for tight ends. There you go. Second or third. But it was one of the highest all time for tight ends. He he tested, like you said, extremely well in ending. The only thing he, he did have that, was, that didn't really compare favorably was his weight. But that's a that's a historical thing because that's been trending downward for tight ends for quite a while now, for at least the last seven or eight years, where tight ends have gotten a little bit more lean and a little bit faster, a lot faster. Um, and Gesicki ran a 4.54, which was 97th percentile for a tight end. You know, he was very fast, very quick, very agile, and very explosive at a 41-inch vert. You know, all of his numbers were good. And if, if your worst thing is, well, he's a little skinnier than those guys from back in the 90s. If that's the worst thing that you can say about a guy, I think you're doing all right. Yeah, exactly right. And, you know, we speaking of skinny and, and larger guys, I mean, we'll talk about Jordan Davis here in just one second. My goodness, what a combine <laughs> that guy had. But at that same position group and one of the fan favorites down here is Christian Wilkins. And again, going back to previous evidence, him doing the splits at the national championship game, yeah. you probably had a feeling that guy was pretty limber and pretty athletic. How did he do in rest? And he's such a likable dude, oh, man. Best. I really like best. Christian Wilkins coming out. Um, Wilkins actually got an elite score, but he didn't have a ton of elite individual testing metrics, which I, I love these types of guys because this isn't a guy who comes out here and he's just blowing you away with one big thing. But he's he's better than pretty much everybody at everything. He's, he, he doesn't have any, any individual flaws from an athletic standpoint. And it's really great to see guys that do that. You know, he's above average in his speed and his explosiveness and his agility. None of those are elite marks, but all of them are really good. And that, to me, that tracks to really 
who he is as a player. He's just really good at everything. And he really flashed some elite level run defense this year as well, too. So seeing him kind of come into his own and get better every single year. Is there anybody else out there you want to throw in that I'm forgetting on the Dolphins roster that just kind of blew your mind on the scorecards? Yeah, Javon Holland was a guy that came out and just blew out testing. I mean, he had a 9.54. He had really good speed, really good explosiveness. Um, you kind of expected that when you watched him on tape because he's very clearly a fast and explosive guy. Um, Hunter Long was notable. I know you guys already had Gesicki, but but whenever you draft a tight end, tight end is the most uh, the most correlated position when it comes to athletic testing and success in the NFL. And when you draft a tight end, you sh- you just should go after the better athletes. It's 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 playing the numbers, right? You want to play the numbers. Um, and Hunter Long came out in a class that didn't really have quite as many top tier athletes, um, but he was. He scored really well in explosiveness and great in his speed. Um, you know, four seven one doesn't even it, it doesn't sound as great as it used to because we're so used to these ridiculous guys like Gasicki coming out now. But four seven one is still really really good for a tight end. Um, it's just below 80th percentile. Um, and you get a guy like that and you can pair him with somebody with like Gesicki. That's 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 putting some weapons on your football field. Um, and then, of course, Jalen Phillips came out last year. Jalen Phillips um, posted a 9.87, one of the highest all times for a pass rusher. Uh, all of his numbers were really good except for his bench. But he's got longer arms. So guys with longer arms don't usually have the best benches. Um, all of his other numbers were fantastic. They were they were elite speed, elite explosion, great agility drills. I mean, you just can't go wrong with that kind of athletic profile. And we saw that translate to breaking the Dolphins' rookie sack record this last season with eight and a half sacks for Jalen Phillips. I, you really kind of caught my attention there with the Hunter Long stuff and the idea behind the athletic tight ends. I wasn't aware of that. So that position group, by the numbers, just traditionally and historically looking back, is typically favors the more athletic player. That's what you were saying? Yeah, it's, it's not very common that you have a, a, a tight end that finds a whole lot of success in the NFL that doesn't have an elite profile. We've got a couple of guys recently who didn't have that top-tier profile, your Jimmy Grahams, your Rob Gronkowskis. Um, Zach Ertz is probably the most notable one. He didn't have that elite profile. Mark Andrews was close, but he didn't have an elite profile either. But most tight ends who find success in the NFL, even a little bit of success, are elite testers. These are your best athletes that you can get on a football field. Um, There are no good examples of a tight end who didn't test well and found significant NFL success. The the one guy that we had was uh, was Jordan Reed from Washington, and he was injured coming out and then injured for a good deal of his NFL career. But he just barely qualified and was below average. Um, everybody else that's found significant NFL success. And when I say significant NFL success, I'm talking about yardage benchmarks because that's something I can track. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and he had, uh, it's just a 750 yard season or better. And nobody else has had it. It's it, there's just, there's just so rare. You're very into the quantifiable metrics, aren't you there, Ken? I, I don't blame you for that. Anything it's, with numbers. <laughs> it's, it's a tough sport to quantify, so that's why, that's why I'm a huge fan of, of what you and your team do over there at RAS. But, um, you know, let's, let's go ahead and pivot now to the actual draft class this year. And, Ken, I went down and just – I found team needs on cbssports.com, and they listed offensive line, running back, receiver, and uh, <clears throat> the linebacker position. So let's go ahead and just focus on those four here for this particular podcast. And let's go ahead and start at the running back position. And I want to hear just about guys that really kind of popped in RAS, but also a question I had 
specifically about Iowa State's Brees Hall, because I know he's for sure going to be on your list. And I heard a stat today, again, going off script once again on you here, uh, on a podcast, the Around the NFL podcast, talked about how his measurements in terms of his, I think it was his next-gen score, was like Saquon Barkley, Reggie Bush, uh, Derek Henry, and forgive me for getting the rest of the class, but all guys that have had really good NFL careers. Is that kind of the mold you found him in, in the RAS? Well, he posted a 9.95 okay. out of 10, which is, <laughs> yeah. you, can't, you can't get a whole lot better than that. Uh, but he falls within a really good, a really good group of testers who became those top tier types of rushers. Uh, you're, you're really just talking about size and speed and explosiveness. Uh, the running backs all skipped the agility drills this year due to some, some scheduling stuff with the combine. Uh, but he ran a four, three, nine, which is anything sub four, four is, is we've kind of lost how rare that, that trait is. And it's going to, it's going to seem even more common after this combine because there were so many fast runners at this combine. Uh, but the, it's, it's 97th percentile at, at the running back position to run under a four, four. That's, that's not something that's common. That's, that's, that's the highest 3% you can get. Um, and then his explosive drills were 96th and 93rd percentile for his, his uh, vert and his broad. You know, you got a guy who can plant his foot in the ground and then get up to a very high top speed very quickly. That's useful in the NFL. Um, and he's not a small back. You know, he's not a, a huge bruiser, but, you know, 5'11", 212 pounds or 217 pounds, that's not small. That's a guy that can that can mix it up. So you got that speed and you've got some size there. You can do a lot of damage with that. Three down back with tons and tons and tons of college production. Another guy that had a lot of college production this last season was really in the Heisman candidate uh, watch there towards the end was Ken, he goes by Kenny Walker, the third now, not Kenneth Walker from Michigan state. Did, where does he kind of check in and, and just kind of give us the, uh, the over, over what's the, what's the term I'm looking for here? The bird's eye view. Jeez, Travis, <laughs> you, you do words for a living. The bird's eye view here of, of this running back class and how they stack up traditionally to the rest of to running back classes going back to 87. Yeah, I'm very familiar with Kenny Walker. I actually live just just down the street from uh, from the Michigan State campus right. here. So, um, you know, he also ran a sub four four. Um, the big question for him coming in was whether or not he had that kind of breakaway speed and and running a 98th percentile 40 yard dash. That kind of that answers that question. Um, he brings much of the similar stuff that that we saw with Brees Hall. You know, he's he's not quite as big, but he's a little bit more compact. He's a little bit more thickly built. So, you know, Brees Hall might be, might be a rocket. Kenneth Walker's a little bit more like a, a, a bowling ball shot out of a rocket. So. <laughs> That's too good. That is too good. What about, what about uh, you know, just kind of thinking about where, this, where the, the draft might come off in terms of Dolphins have pick 29, pick 50. You never know where the running back goes. It tends to be like a, a cavalcade. Once one guy goes, a few more go, and that's just how it kind of seems to, to materialize in the NFL draft. Who else do you like that maybe isn't catching that, you know, end of the first round buzz that kind of had a good workout and might've boosted their stock a little bit. Uh, Rashad white out of Arizona state posted some really good numbers. He, he didn't have a sub four, three, but he had a sub four, five, still a very, very good time for a running back, great explosive drills, but I don't really hear his name talked about a whole lot. He's a guy that I think could get a little bit more buzz. Um, a guy that I don't, I didn't really talk about before and he didn't put up an elite score um, was Tyler Algier from, from BYU. And the thing about his profile wasn't that he had some elite profile, but he has a common profile that has worked out in the NFL. Um, he ran a four or six, which isn't super impressive on its own. It's kind of, kind of mid ground for a running back. 
uh, but he had a really good broad jump and he's over 220. There aren't a lot of running backs that have done that type of testing that are about a four, six and really good broad and over 220. But the ones that have your Le'Veon Bells, your uh, Montgomery's from the bears, um, CJ Anderson from, from, from a couple of years back, those types of guys have made it in the NFL and carved out a pretty easy niche. And it's a fairly common profile among successful backs. So he's a guy I might look out for if you're not, if you don't end up with an elite tier athlete, it's just a guy that fits a common NFL mold. Yeah. The running back position really seems to be one of those where it's just kind of about like your tape, right? The way you run the football and your vision and feel. And those are very, very difficult things to quantify. Kent Platt here at math bomb on Twitter, ras.football. We're going to go ahead and take our last break and then come back on the other side, talk about the receivers, offensive line, as well as linebacker position here on the drive time podcast brought to you by auto nation. All right, back here on the Drive Time Podcast with Travis Wingfield, presented by Auto Nation. We have Kent Platt, the creator of RAS.Football, the Relative Athletic Scorecard. Again, just one of the most valuable resources you can find during draft season and all year long with the way these players test athletically and the metrics they post. And it's just a, a great resource, Kent. I can't tell you that enough, man. It's it's great talking to you here as we do every March or February on the podcast. I want to pick it back up at the receiver position here because this is a group where shoot, we've had these receiver classes the last few years. We're spoiled as football fans that love, you know, the high flying, you know, the, uh, the, the, the passing game that's just taken over the NFL. And this class seems to have some more of those guys. And I'm just curious who those guys flew on. Was it Thursday night? Who really stood out for you in those, in those testing metrics at the combine? A lot of juice in this class. Uh, Christian Watson out of North Dakota State had a really good senior bowl, and he came into the combine with a lot of people talking about how he's already jumping up boards. And if he if he just tests tests a little bit well, he might be able to continue that trend. And then he ran a four three six at six four. That's crazy. Uh, that size speed profile is rare. You don't get a lot of guys like that. Um, he's not as heavy as Calvin Johnson was, but that's that type of number that that really tall, really fast type of type of runner. And he put those kind of things up. Also extremely explosive. Uh, we had Chris Olave, who's had hype for some time out of Ohio State, ran a sub 4-4. Um, also a really good, really good burner, has tons and tons of speed. And then Garrett Wilson from Ohio State also ran a sub 4-4 and good explosion drills. You got a lot of guys that can move in this draft class. Yeah, I mean... Uh, there was a point there where they were starting to kind of wonder, like, are are these unofficial times? Are they doing us any favors? Because everyone's just breaking records here, you know, flying down the track there at Indianapolis. A couple of guys I wanted to to circle back with, and forgive me for my my lack of knowledge here, because I'm not quite sure if he got back in time off the injury, but did John Mechie participate? He did not. John Mechie didn't test. Um, I don't know whether he's going to or not at Alabama's Pro Day. I've, I've heard yes, and I've heard no. My guess would be no. Yeah. Um, I, I tend to err on the side of guys who are injured or coming back from injury probably shouldn't test. Yeah. Um, the same thing with Jalen Waddle last year. Right. But we had the, one of the new advents they have is the GPS tracking. And from what, you know, Daniel Jeremiah and scouts all said that this guy just blew the GPS out of the, out of the building. Yeah. And that's, that's always a big deal because NFL teams pay attention to this type of testing, but that GPS stuff has been picking up and it's going to continue to do so. 
I wish that we had access to yeah, it right. in the public so that we could see a lot more of, of whether whether that's good or not, right? Because they can tell us that it's it's they ran a certain amount, but we don't know if that's good. <laughs> it's it's whatever they want to tell us, and that's what they told us last year was that Jalen Waddle was a, a freak in that way, and you, you can see it on tape. I mean, and just the way he moves is different. The last guy I wanted to ask you about here because I was so fascinated to talk to him, and I just love his tape too at Kentucky. There was Wandell Robinson. How did he perform in, in terms of RAS? Yeah, he tested okay for RAS, um, kind of in the middle ground for that. Part of that in due to his size. Uh, Wandale Robinson is not very big, um, but he's really fast. He ran a 4-4-4. Again, with as many guys that were running sub 4-4 here, that's still really, really fast. We don't want to lose sight that that's still really fast. Um, I think the only thing that people are going to have any concerns with Wandale coming in is his size. Kentucky kind of kind of made it a little bit hard on him than harder on him than they needed to, uh, because they listed him at five eleven and then he came in at five eight. Wow! And that is no fault of his own, yeah. right? But that that gets people with those expectations. You know, a lot of people talking about these players, and if you think he's going to be one way and then they come out another, that's one thing you can jump on. But um, he's not a big dude; never looked big on taste tape, but he looked fast and he ran fast, and that's what's important. And the funny part about that too is that he's a guy that carried the football and has a running back's mentality when the football's in his hands too. So that's it's interesting to see how that works. And another example of how sometimes the testing and what you see doesn't always match what happens on tape. But again, the more resources we have, the, the more informed we are to make these decisions. And we're not making decisions, but we like to talk about it. So here we are. And uh, let's go ahead and pivot now to the offensive line. And it just keeps going, man. Like, I mean, I remember when Makai Becton plays that 40-yard dash a couple of years back. Everyone was buzzing about that. But it seems to be kind of – that's just how it goes. You're, you're 320 pounds, and you can freaking move <laughs> in today's NFL. So who really popped to you on that offensive line group? Yeah, one of my favorite prospects to look at after they tested the combine was Cole Strange out of Chattanooga. Um, I, I knew coming into the combine that he was considered a very smart player, a very cerebral player. And that's extremely important when you're a center. Um, I had him graded out as a guard, but he came in as a 9.95. It's going to be similar to that at, at center. Um, but I didn't expect him to test out as athletically superior as he did. In addition to that, um, it's already a huge thing. If you're a smart center an intelligent center who can read different coverages and adjust your blocking schemes and keep everybody in the right spot. But if you add to that, that you're also really athletic compared to your position group, that's extremely helpful. You know, the, the, the Lions drafted uh, Frank Ragnow a few years ago with a similar athletic profile. And that's the type of guy you want to look for, a guy that's really smart and cerebral and can also move. Um, he was the most impressive to me out of that offensive group. Uh, Zion Johnson, another guard out of Boston College, um, came in with that reputation of being a, a superior a, a superior athlete and then tested like it. It's one of those checking the boxes type things. You don't want to you don't want to count it twice and kind of move him up because he was a great athlete. But if he's a great athlete on tape and then he checks those boxes, then you already know how he looks on tape. That's how he is. That's what we're looking at. Um, and I think he did a lot to to really help himself at the combine. And that can kind of serve as a tiebreaker when when teams get into their 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 war rooms and their draft boards and trying to figure out is this player the guy we go with or that guy. Those those little things you check the boxes like you talk about can be tiebreakers in those events. How about off the outside? How about a tackle or a couple tackles that really kind of blew you away? Yeah, Trevor Penning and Bernard Raymond are two guys that are considered kind of mid to late first round guys, and both of them tested extremely well. Um, Trevor Penning had some high expectations, you know, Spencer Brown took that 10.0 RAS spot last year when he came out, um, and he has been the top rated tackle, um, athletically over the last 30, 36 years. 
Um, and Penning had that. He had to try to, get to follow that up, you know. Um, but he came out with a 9.96. I mean, that's not that's not too bad. That's that's at least making a free throw after you know Jordan dunks on somebody. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's he ran a 4.89 at 325 pounds. Um, it, it wasn't the. It's crazy that we're looking at that and like that wasn't the best performance from a guy that ran that was 325 or greater because this combine was so bonkers. Uh, but that's still a 98 percentile 40 yard dash uh, for a guy that is you know huge even for an offensive tackle. Offensive tackles are huge, and he's a an even bigger offensive tackle. I might need you to explain to me Evan Neal because not not the workout, just just kind of making joking joking around here, but. Th- was it 337 he weighed where is it where is the 337 on that guy because i saw the photo man he looks gr- he looks fantastic i just it, it speaks to what we you talked about how this year was totally bonkers i think that picture kind of gave us some foreshadowing for how this entire combine would go i want to finish up at the linebacker position here with you Kent, real quick i know about nicobe dean devin lloyd two guys at the top of the draft they're expected to go in that first round but i've heard this is a pretty deep linebacker class as well who really popped to you at that position yeah, we have Leo Chanel out of Wisconsin who who tested with a 9.99 and might even be better than that because he posted some some pretty crazy agility drills at his pro day. And if those stand, he would take over the top spot for linebackers for Raz. Um, I, there wasn't a whole lot of hype coming in from him. I have a lot of Packers friends and they've been hyping him up. But I, I tell you, you take that with a grain of salt, but they were right <laughs> on this one. Um, Troy Anderson's a guy that I hadn't heard a whole lot about coming out of Montana state, but he also put up extremely good numbers. He ran a four, four, two at linebacker being 99th percentile percentile speed is extremely important. And in today's NFL, you want a guy that can move. Uh, and Chad Muma out of Wyoming was a guy that really impressed me. Um, I knew he was going to run fast. He ran fast. He also posted some of the best explosive numbers at the combine, both, both his vert and his broad were 98th percentile in his position. So uh, yeah, there you go. That that's I mean team speed. I saw I think Bucky Brooks was tweeting about talking about the move the six podcast about how team speed can really it can erase mistakes that you make and that seems to be where these teams are, are getting faster and, and players are certainly getting faster and you have an option to get faster in this year's class as well. Before I let you go, Kent, just real quick, was Jordan Davis the most impressive workout of all time? It was the second most impressive okay. <laughs> workout of all time, but the most impressive workout was Kelvin Johnson. Kelvin Johnson's worst metric was his 10 yard split. And it was 97th percentile. That was his his worst number. You're not going to beat that. But the fact that Jordan Davis was the second highest athletic test I I, I have in the entire database is pretty insane. Um, I think his worst one, he had an 88th percentile for See, not 97, 88. That was his worst metric. But you're talking about a guy that's 6'6 and 341 pounds. It, it, the numbers, the kind of athletic ability it takes to be that fast and that explosive at that size just blows me away. Um, it's the most impressive one that I've ever physically seen because I didn't actually watch Calvin Johnson's combine. Um <laughs> But it's it's just insane. I, I can't. I'm just laughing. It's it's stupid to me. It's it just. I love this stuff. And when when guys don't make a mockery out of it, but they just kind of like, oh yeah, I'll show up and do this. It's like, all right, man, we we get it. You're 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 not built like the rest of us. You're not the same species as as the, at this point. So. 
Kent Platt, at MathBomb on Twitter. Give him a follow, RAS.Football. Again, one of the most valuable draft resources you're going to find out there. Kent, thank you so much again for your time. Uh, Like I said, I use this all year round, and you guys should check him out as well. Kent, until next time, my friend, thank you so much for your time today. You too, man. Have a great one. And away he goes. I love that episode every single year. I might have to get Kent back on post-draft and kind of talk about players the Dolphins drafted and make it just a Miami Dolphins themed podcast. Wouldn't that be kind of fun? I think so. All right, that's going to be my time today. You all, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. You can find me on Twitter at Wingfield NFL and the Miami Dolphins at Miami Dolphins. We have new Twitter spaces that just posted on Wednesday night. Go ahead and check that out. And we'll be doing that, I think, weekly, maybe bi-weekly. We'll be coming at you with Twitter spaces here. Myself, Seth, and OJ, as well as the Fish Tank podcast there with those fellas. The YouTube channel for Dolphins today, as well as our media availabilities. You won't want to miss those. And last but not least, MiamiDolphins.com. Until next time, fins up, Caroline. Daddy is coming upstairs. <laughs>